Romans chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to take you down through the first 11 verses, the first part of it, and then in verse 11 is kind of the transition ultimately in this book. So Romans chapter 6, follow along with me. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So, so here's what Paul's doing. A lot of the Rome, book of Romans is an argument. He's putting up the typical disagreements that come up. And so chapter 5 was, and, and 4 and 5 and 3, 4 and 5, we're dealing with the fact that we are saved by grace. It's no works of our own. You do nothing to contribute to your salvation. It is purely a work of Christ's grace and what he does. And so now what he's doing is he's, he's addressing the common objection that comes uh, with anyone that preaches what true grace really is. It's the gift of God, not our works. And he's saying, what shall we say then? Shall we continue sinning then? I mean, if, if, if we're saved completely by Jesus Christ's work, if it means has nothing to do with me in terms of my salvation, then why not just continue in sin so that his grace can, can continue to increase? That's what the common argument was. It's still the same today. People in churches and people want to say the exact same thing today about grace. You, you know you're in a church that preaches grace when people have this objection. If it was about me and Jesus together and I'm working hard enough, I'm showing up to church enough, I'm reading my Bible enough, and that's what's saving me, that you're never going to have this objection. But this objection will always come up when true grace is preached because true grace is a work that Jesus Christ did for you and me while we were still in our sins. So Paul's addressing it here and we're going to see why that's an inconsistent thought. Hypothetically, yeah, it's totally him. But practically and spiritually, that, that's not how it works. You would never, when you understand this grace, come to the conclusion, well, maybe I should just keep on sinning so that his grace can abound. And so Paul's addressing that in an, in an argument. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he uses one of the strongest negatives you can write in the Greek language. He says, by no means or absolutely not. Then here's his question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, here's Paul's summary or conclusion, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's my first point for you and the first application in this book, really, the first command is this, is I grow spiritually when I regularly preach the gospel to myself. 
I grow spiritually when I regularly preach the gospel to myself. Now, I've phrased this in such a way to, to encompass all that Paul is saying. Paul is really reviewing the gospel in the first 10 verses of chapter 6, a gospel that he's just explained to us in chapters 3 through 5 prior to this, and he's summarizing it. And then in chapter 11, or excuse me, verse 11, we see the very first book or first command in the book of Romans. It's the first time Paul gives us a command to do anything. All he's been doing up to this point is telling us what God has done and who we are as a result of it, or who we were before God came into our lives. It's all been just statements of truth or fact. This is the first time he tells us to do anything with it. And the first thing he tells us to do is go back and remember or consider what's been done for you. Consider the gospel. Keep checking it. In fact, the word he uses for consider is actually an accounting term. It's an accounting term that they would have used in the marketplace at that time, and it essentially means keep going back and checking your account. You gotta check a couple things in your account. It's based on your debits and your credits. You need to find out and you need to go look at your account and realize that your debt to sin has been paid. It's gone. You have no more credit card debt to sin. And that's not it. You've now been also credited in your account every bit of righteousness that is necessary for you to be assured of eternal life with your new father. So Paul is telling us, you gotta remember who you are. I love how, and I stole this phrase from several authors that have used it and passed it on throughout the years of preaching the gospel to ourselves. Because here's what we often do, and I love how one person put it, he says, you need to learn to preach the gospel to yourself instead of continuing to listen to yourself. You see, what most of us do is we start listening to ourselves. Oh, I, I blew it again. I'm no good, or I can't do this, or I'll never get to be any. We start listening to all the junk that we run through our heads, or the other side of it is, look at me, I'm really great, and look at all the people I've impacted. It can go either way. We can either tear ourselves down, or we can overly inflate ourselves and think that we're too great. Those are the two things that we tend to do when we listen to ourselves. And the gospel undermines both of them. It undermines our, our woe is me attitude because it shows us that there is a God of this universe, the greatest person this world and, and universe has ever known, valued you enough to send his son for you. That encourages those who want to tear themselves down. It also makes you realize that if you think you're something great, that God had to send his own perfect son and he went through the most horrific of suffering and judgment for your sin and mine. So when you think too much of yourself, you need to realize that even if you were the only person walking on this earth, Jesus would have had to suffer everything he did because your sins are that heinous to a holy God. You see, that's the beauty of the gospel. It brings a confidence when we need a confidence, and it brings a humility when we need humility. 
We need to learn to preach this truth to ourselves regularly so we understand who we truly are before we'll ever properly walk a righteous life. See, anyone who is preaching that truth would never fall into the mindset that Paul was having to address here. Hey, if if it's all of grace and, and if Jesus just forgives everything, then why not just continue living in sin? Anyone who understands the heart of the gospel and what Paul has said in the first five chapters and what it cost God in his son and how hurtful and harmful sin is could never say, I think I'll just continue in it since it's already all forgiven in Christ. It's so antithetical to the truth of what's been done for us. So the first thing is we need to consider who we are. We need to to preach this gospel to ourselves over and over and over again. And and I want to show just three things in this first ten verses that do that, and then we'll get to Paul's second application of, of committing to who we are. Here's three things that we see in this verse. The first one is this, my old self has been judged and crucified with Christ. So if if I've trusted Christ as my Savior, if I'm a Christian, if I have trusted him, these are three things that this passage tells us about. There's more, but these are three key ones. My old self has been judged and crucified with Christ. The passages here, uh, several passages that I want to just touch on, and we could touch on even more of them in here, but let me show you uh, a few of them. Could you know that next slide with the scriptures? It says, how can we who died to sin still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been, who have been, these are all past tense, have been baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. See, my old self has been judged and crucified with Christ. It's died. The word, the Greek word used in in these statements is a, past tense, an orist active verb that means a past action that was completed and done. You're not continuing to die to sin the way Paul's talking about it here. You're done. You're dead. You already died to it. I love the little cartoon I saw of a few couples who were sitting in church one day when their pastor was preaching on this, and he's talking about being dead to sin, and one wife leaned over to the next one and said, you know, I don't know that I've ever died to sin, but I think I almost fainted once. You know, that's, that's not what this ta- passage is talking about. It's not something that you do. It's something that's been done to you. You've died to sin. It's a done deal. So what does it mean? Well, let me, let me tell you a few things that it doesn't mean. Uh, what some commentators summarize, and I think this is helpful for us. Here's some things that dying to sin does not mean in this passage. It does not mean that sin has been eradicated in me. It doesn't mean that sin has been completely eliminated from being present in my life at all. And there are some false teachings that will go on to, to, to say perfectionism, that we can become perfect in this world. That's not what this passage is teaching, and I'm going to show you in a little bit why that is. That's not what this means, that sin is eradicated in my life. Just ask your wife uh, if that's the case, and she'll confirm that for you one way or the other, your spouse or your children, right? Either one of those pretty much can set that falsehood aside. No In fact, there'd be no reason for putting this passage in here to remind us of this if that was the case, would it? 
In fact, every single command in the New Testament would be unnecessary if, if sin had been eradicated in our lives. It will be when Christ returns and we receive our new bodies, but it is not right now. The second thing it does not mean is it does not mean I'll never desire to sin again nor be tempted. That's not what Paul is saying here. Not that we'll never have a desire to sin again or that we'll never be tempted from it. That's not what it means to be dead to sin. The third thing it doesn't mean is it does not mean I have to put sin to death in my life. Okay, this isn't something that I have to do. You can't do it. That was the whole problem with us. That's what the beginning of Romans teaches us. Jesus did this for us in his death. Now, later Paul's going to talk to us about putting to, to death some of the deeds of sin or deeds or the actions of sin, but Paul's not talking about the actions of sin in this chapter. He's talking about sin in a slightly different way, and I want to help you see what So what, what does it mean? Here's what it means. It means I'm dead to my old master, sin. Paul is portraying sin as a master, as a king. He's personifying it in this chapter. He's not talking about sin like deeds that we do. He's talking about sin as a power or a personified power in our lives. And what he's saying is that, is that you no longer have to pay him nor obey him. Meaning you don't have to sin anymore. You don't have to follow sin as your master anymore. You're dead to your old master sin. And, and here's how you can, you can't see it in the English, unfortunately, but if you study this passage in the Greek, what you realize is, is through this section, Paul puts the article before the word sin. He, if you were to translate it literally, you would say, you are dead to the sin. Listen, he's, he's identifying it as a unique thing. Unlike most of the places in the Bible where you just use the word sin to talk about a sinful action, here he's personifying it as some kind of a power, as some kind of a reigning king. And, and prior to this event in our lives in the gospel, we didn't have any other choice. We, we were slaves to sin that it, it has its own kingdom and we were born under that kingdom and we were slaves in that kingdom and we could do nothing else but obey it. And you're saying, well, I, I'm not sure I understand. So let me, let me explain this a little bit in the sense that, that we all are slaves to something. And when Paul says that, what he's saying is that we all live for something. There's gonna be something basically for every human being in which you pursue your ultimate meaning something that is of most or greatest importance to you. And whatever that is, it might be money, it might be success, it might be power, it might be self-respect. You, you put your label on it. You live for something. Every single human being does. And, that, and whatever it is that you live for becomes your master. And you will do whatever you need to to get that master's approval. And that master will give you things. Don't get me wrong. It will give you stuff when you serve it. But it'll never fully fulfill you. See, as you offer yourself to that master, you're hoping it will give you something back. Let me give you some examples. Let's say you're a workaholic. If you're a workaholic, you've made a covenant with that master 
And it may be, I'm going after this amount of money. I'm going after for this sense of achievement. I'm going after, you know, this amount of success because those things are important to me. But, but that is your master. And you've chosen to become a slave to it. And it will often give you the things you're looking for. But here's what will happen in your life. When there's any chance that that master isn't going to give you what you think you need, if, if, if money starts to go in the wrong direction or your success isn't happening when you're giving everything to it or, or you're not getting the achievement that you want, you will begin to compromise other things in your life that are important that you would never would have thought you would compromise in order to serve that God. Why? Because you're a slave to it. Others, it might be acceptance. Some of you, your, your God is acceptance and, and you're in a bad relationship and you know you're in a bad relationship. In fact, other people have even told you that relationship is not good for you. But you cannot see yourself not being with someone. You so badly need acceptance that you're willing to compromise things that you would never recommend to someone else. But yet you're doing them yourself because your master is acceptance. You have to have it. And whatever our master is, we will compromise, we will sacrifice other things in our life in order to get what's most important. Let me give you a little test because the list could go on. I could spend uh, hours telling you of the different ways we uh, have masters, but here's how you can test what your master is. What makes you overly angry, overly fearful, or overly sad? What is it? You see, see, when you lose good things in your life, we all get angry at times. We all worry about some things. We all get sad about things when we lose good things in our lives. But when you lose your ultimate thing, when you lose what's, what's most important to you, you go through the roof type anger or through the roof crazy type anxiety or through the roof type sadness that just sends you into the doldrums. When you lose what is absolutely and most important to you, those natural, normal feelings that we have go to a whole nother level. In fact, Paul's going to talk about that very thing later in our passage. But that's when you've identified your master. And that's what Paul is talking about. We are dead to those things. We are no longer required to find our worth in these masters or these little gods. God has brought us infinite worth, infinite value through his son. And he has shown us that, that our value does not need to reside in these temporal things. You no longer have to seek acceptance from people who will never perfectly accept you. You, never, you don't need to find your worth in money that's never going to die for you. Here's the strange things about these masters. Is none of them are going to be there for you when you need them. Money will not die for you. Power will not die for you. Acceptance will not die for you. Beauty will not die for you. There's only one master who has ever died for you. 
and that's Jesus. And he is the one that sets us free from these masters. Second thing we see in that is, is I am no longer a slave to sin's power and death. I'm no longer a slave to sin's power and death. That's what Jesus has said to us. I don't have to give in to these things anymore. Now I might, and I'm going to fall back to them in times, but as I preach the gospel to myself, as I'm reminded of who I am now in Christ and where my true value comes from, where my true power comes from, where my true future comes from, it begins to free me from my slavery to sin. Let me show you these verses in, in, in that section as well that talk about this. It says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, or for the purpose that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We know that our old self was crucified with him, and here's the purpose again, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, no longer to master sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You see, Paul's telling us that we're no longer required to find our worth in these masters. And as we see what God has done for us, as we recognize who Christ is in our lives, as we preach this truth to us, it begins to free us to walk in a greater truth and a greater master. My third thing in this passage says this, I am spiritually alive and able to obey God. I am spiritually alive and able to obey God. You see, since Christ has died for us and freed us from slavery to sin, we're now alive to God, which means we can obey God. We can follow him. Even though it might be hard and even though there may be elements where we are struggling to trust him, we now have the ability to do so that we did not when we were slaves. All we could ever do before knowing Jesus was obey our old master. Here's the passages in this section that talk about this idea of being alive. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's command there, that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. You might say, well, Chad, that doesn't really sound like a freedom. That's just slavery to another master. Yeah, that's true. The difference is this master is all good. You're going to be a slave to something. There's no option of, of not being a slave. No one is completely free except God himself. So you will be a slave to someone. So who is it going to be? Are you going to be a slave to something that will never lay down its life for you and instead will require that you die trying to achieve the success or hang on to the beauty or, or get the acceptance that you feel you need to be worthwhile? Or will you give your life to the master, the one master who laid down his life for you? You see, Jesus took on a human body and placed himself into the kingdom of sin with you and me. He stepped into our world and he put himself, he took on a human body, what, which is what the, the kingdom of sin and the, and the master of sin is able to touch and mess with in our brokenness. He put that on and he lived 
in our kingdom. But he never gave in to the lies that we give into. And when Master Sin did everything he could to lure Jesus with his temptations and, and, and lure him into his world, Jesus resisted every single time. And when Master Sin threatened Jesus' life, saying, if you don't take my way, if you don't follow my path, your life is in danger. And didn't just threaten him, but followed through with the threat. Jesus stayed true to his greater master. And not once did he give in to the little gods and the sin masters that this world often lures us away with. In his whole life, he offered to God as an instrument of righteousness, even to the point of death. Not just a, a nice death on a bed and drifting off, as we all would think, wow, that would be the best possible way to die. That's not how he died. He didn't take a comfortable death. He took the most horrific of deaths that any person could ever experience. So that you and I, who were slaves in this kingdom of master sins, could be set free. He paid that debt so that you and I, who deserve that debt, could have hope for our new master, a master that requires righteous servants that we were not. He made us righteous. He lived for you and me so that we might offer ourselves to a new master, a righteous master. And that's what Paul ends this section with. His first command to do something in the whole book starts in verse 12 when he says this. After considering who we are, he says, now we got to commit to who we are. And he says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. Meaning, don't let that master reign in you anymore to make you obey its passions. That word for passions in the Greek word is epithumios. Thumios means passions. Epi in Greek means above or, or over or more than. It's passions beyond what they're supposed to. Meaning when we make anything in this world that's a passion to us, when we elevate it to something that's greater, a greater passion than it should be, it reigns on us. It rules in us. There's only one thing in our lives that should be our epithumias. And that's God himself. That's what we were created for. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Here's my last point for you. I grow spiritually when I make myself available to obey God. I grow spiritually when I make myself available to obey God. That's what Paul is saying. Remember who we are and then commit to who we are. It 
See, if I put myself in situations that promote sin, I'm gonna sin. I'm gonna fall back into the patterns of my old master because sin is still present in us. Even though we no longer owe it the debt that it once held over us, it's still present in this world and that master is still walking around. And when we put ourselves in situations where sin is present or it can be promoted, we're, we're gonna sin. So I wanna ask you a real honest question. In what areas of your life are you presenting yourself to master sin? Where are you doing that? Because you will continue to follow his reign when you continue to offer yourself for him. Is it a person in your life that you're spending too much time with and when you're with that person, you're presenting yourself for opportunities that you know full well are not gonna help you be whom God has saved you to be. Maybe it's a place. Maybe there's a place in your life that every time you go there, or you spend time there, or, or that's available to you, that you find yourself not as a person who's presenting themselves to God as an instrument of righteousness, but you find yourself presenting yourself at that moment to an old God that used to be your master, but is no more, but you're acting like he still is. Maybe it's some actions, or maybe it's some thoughts that you're continuing to let dwell, or you're continuing to let them play out in your lives. And every time you do, you step back into the realm of your old master. You know, I, I read one commentary on this passage and the, and the person was, was speaking about post-Civil War time period uh, when the Emancipation Proclamation was made by Abraham Lincoln and all the slaves in our country were set free. And he, he made an illustration of how, how that period looked a lot like us as Christians as we are freed from our sins. He says, you know, all the slaves were freed, but all they'd ever known their whole life was slavery and oppression. And even though legally they were set free, even though the truth was by law you are free, you no longer have to serve this master. You no longer have to serve these oppressive people. The reality was when they walked down the streets, and a former slave met a, a former master or people that were oppressive in that way, they would rarely stand up in the freedom that they had. And the oppressive people will continue to oppress regardless of what the law says. And people who feel like they're slaves will fearfully walk back into what's comfortable because that's all they've ever known. In fact, our country needed people to stand up even to the point of death so that those who had been in slavery could finally begin to live like they were free. You see, this mindset won't change overnight. 
but it also won't change if we just sit back and let master sin continue to reign in our lives. So Paul makes his last point. He says, if I put myself in situations of obedience, I'll obey. He says, present yourself to God as instruments of righteousness. So what I want to challenge you to, what I want to challenge myself to, is when I commit myself to situations of obedience, when I arrange my life in such a way that it's consistent with who I am, you're going to become the person that God saved you to become. So let me ask you, it's not just putting away those opportunities that, that pull you back into sin, but it's committing yourself to those arenas, those avenues that God's given us to be instruments of righteousness. One of them is corporate worship, or is just worship in general. We believe here at Grace that there are three important aspects of our personal worship. One is this corporate time. You and I need to be here. Let's just be honest. When you're not here, you're probably not doing things that would be as good for you as when you are here. And that's not to say that you have to be here to be saved. It's not to say that there's never a reason not to be here. It's just to say when you want to be an instrument for God, when you recognize what he's done for you, this will be of highest priority in your life. It just will. But it's not just this corporate gathering. It's gathering in smaller groups as well. And, and going through life and fighting together as a team to walk out of that slavery. And lastly, it's your personal time. Where in your regular day are you fed and preaching the gospel to yourself? The gospel is this good news. Anytime you open this book and feed on it, you're going to be strengthened because of it. And if this is the only time you ate a meal, if you only ate on Sundays, how strong would you be physically throughout the week? The same is true spiritually in our lives. When we commit ourselves to righteousness, God will use us as instruments of righteousness. Committing to serving, being available to serve others, that's something that many of us constantly say, I don't have time to do that. That's because you've committed to other things that are less important. You've committed to another master. We all have time for the things that God has called us to do. And when you say, I'm gonna make a commitment, it's gonna change other things in my life, but I'm gonna be part of serving others. I'm gonna be available to be a righteous instrument in God's hands. You will begin to grow. When you don't, you won't. It's really that simple. The Christian life has never been complicated. It's hard, but it's never been complicated. It's make yourself available. We've talked about supporting God's church in these projects. Whenever we don't set aside our resources and see God as our supplier, we're going to use our resources for unrighteous things as opposed to setting them aside for righteous things. Commit to these things. Commit to being an instrument of God's righteousness. And God will begin to grow you and change you into the person that I believe you would not be here 
today if you didn't want to become that kind of person? I'm excited for this series. I'm excited for what God's going to teach us through this section on what it looks like to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ. Imagine a church that preached the gospel to itself every single day and even to its neighbors and others around them that was so convinced of the truth that God had made so clearly and plainly available to us that not only did they preach it to themselves, but they committed themselves to being available for the righteous deeds that he wants us to do in our community. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for your servant Paul who from the human side modeled this so selflessly in his own life. Lord, who who often longed for even just the parchments from his other servants when he was in prison would say, bring the, the parchments, bring the letters that I've written, bring them to me. So while he, you could imagine sitting in that cell wondering, what am I doing here? When his circumstances in this world seemed to just stink and, and every little God that, that he would normally have pursued of success, of power, of resources was stripped away and he was sitting all by himself in a cell. Could find great hope in just reading these letters and remembering who he was. That even though he was in chains because of the gospel, he knew that no earthly leader, no earthly ruler could chain his heart and could chain the work that you were doing through your servant. And now we read his letters. 2,000 years later, we read letters that he wrote while he was in prison. Lord, because your word is true, your power is true. And Lord, we will do deeds today that we may never see their outcome. We may never know their result, but our city will. Future people will. Because your work and your word never goes out never fails to accomplish everything that you have sovereignly ordained for it. So Lord, make us a church who cannot help but consider who we are in Christ and can't wait to commit to who we are in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.